So on this episode of Game Mastery, we're going to be talking about building an adventure, building your own adventure, and what it takes to do so, why you might want to do it in the first place, what the pitfalls are, all of the basics. Think of it as a quick start. And as always, I'm Steve. I'm Mark. And I'm Andrew. There we go. So, gentlemen, we're going to start at the beginning. Mark, simple question. I'm ready. What? What is an adventure, Mark? An adventure is a hook or MacGuffin. You're going to have a goal. And an adventure is just everything that happens on the way to that goal. Typically, an adventure is going to consist of multiple combat and non-combat encounters, and those are going to be strung together to create a cohesive segment. As you might guess, adventures are larger than encounters, since they encompass multiple encounters. And adventures are smaller than a campaign, which is basically just adventures strung together to make a cohesive whole in the same way that encounters are strung together to make an adventure. That's my definition anyway. Andrew, how would you describe an adventure? Well, I think there are three parts to an adventure. There's a call to action, as Mark said, a hook, something that compels the player characters to do something, make a decision, choose a course of action. And then there are obstacles that the adventurers have to overcome to accomplish that goal, that decision process along the way. And then at the end of the adventure, there will be some kind of resolution. It is typically part of a larger goal. So it's sort of a minor goal in a broader story arc, which we would call a campaign. And in play terms, a campaign may last for years. An adventure may last one to maybe five sessions or so. It sort of has its own little wrap-up. And depending on the number of hours you're playing, but it's, it's typically a shorter-term goal than, say, a campaign, which has much longer time frame. So I was thinking that if somebody's coming into this fresh and they're like, I want to be a GM, that is exactly what I want to do. I want a GM for my friends, or in the case of you two, you are thrust into the role because people either aren't available or they just don't want to do it. So if you've got a group that's starting and you're looking at, hey, which one of us is going to be the DM and how are we going to do this? As a side question to start, before I go into my own little aside here, do you think it's a good idea for someone who's just starting out to say, I think I'm going to go ahead and do my own adventure. Getting your feet wet is the only real way to learn. I suppose you could do a pre-published module, but as we discussed in another episode, that has its own learning process too. So either way you choose, you're going to have to learn and just jump in. Andrew? Yeah, I would recommend probably starting with a published adventure or something that's already been play-tested it's not just your learning curve that's at stake. It's the enjoyment of the players. You know, there's a lot of pitfalls for a new DM and alienating the players from the, an enjoyable game is probably more likely 
with someone who's uncertain about what to do next. Most games come with a beginner's adventure, sort of a an adventure with training wheels where they kind of walk you through at least the first few scenes so you can sort of develop a pace and a rhythm to do it. And I would recommend that a new DM probably should at least run through that adventure with some close friends first with no real expectations of how it's going to play out just to get there, get an idea of what the rhythm is, how things are presented, how you resolve conflicts and stuff. Cause that's usually, they, they give you pretty good instructions in that basic set of whatever game you're playing when you're running through the sample adventure. And it doesn't matter whether other people have played that adventure or not. It's really just to get sort of a rhythm of the group and feel how the, the game's going to sort of unfold. I would certainly recommend at least running a combat before you start building anything. And that includes if you're using your own stuff or a module. You'll need to be familiar with how combat works at a basic level to run one either way, really. I think Andrew's advice is good, but I think you can start out running your own adventure if you want to. If you do that, I'd recommend putting plenty of combat in there, because combat, like we've discussed before, has a lot of decision points and is inherently interesting. So I don't think that you'll let your players down that way. So I think that just about anyone has the capability of running a campaign, doing their own adventure, if they have, say, the 5th edition player's handbook. If you have that and you are paying attention to it and you go through and you learn how to make a character and you do that with the people you're playing with and you look at combat and how skills work and magic and look at the equipment and you do all these things, then you can create an adventure without anything else. Now, it'll be rough and it'll be full of giggles and fun and frustration and maybe tears as you try to work your way through it. It's going to be rough no matter what. It is. But if you have access to something like the Mines of Fandelver, then that particular adventure is such a good starter adventure that if you've got access to it, I would say that if you're just starting, pick who your DM's going to be and go with that. But after that, after that, and you come to us and you come to this podcast, you come to this episode, and you're thinking, I really want to do this. I want to make my own. I've got an idea for a story. I've got an idea for an adventure that I want to take these characters on. When I think about it, I break it up a little differently than, than you two did. I will consider an encounter being something you can do at one session, period. An adventure is the continuation of the story with that, and the campaign is the life that you end up living within the world that that's set in. So if you look at it as three stages, from a player perspective on my end and as a kind of burgeoning DM, because I don't have the experience that you two do, I think I can think of it a little better in chunks of like what I think Mark said about running a combat. Well, maybe the first thing that I want to do as I'm experimenting with this with my friends, I want to run a combat first. So I'm going to create in my adventure story an encounter that has a combat 
or uses skill sets for deep role playing or something like that. Choose one to start. So if you're just starting out, if this is your first time really thinking about doing an adventure on your own, you can use this quick start and what we're going to be talking about to kind of chunk things into segments and you can build upon that. So when you're talking about running an adventure and you've got, hey, I want to do it. I know it's got encounters. I know an adventure is carrying characters along within the story. How do you structure the adventure? How do you look at it and go, I need to do these parts. And what the hell are these parts anyway? I'm not quite sure. Well, the first thing you need to build is the hook. And that's the most important part. Because if the players don't go on the adventure in the first place, then you don't actually have an adventure. And uh, whenever I say the hook, I mean whatever ropes the PCs into actually starting the adventure and gets them into whatever you've got planned. It could be the promise of treasure to get information or so many other things. It can also be the initial starting point. Frequently, a lot of campaigns start with the party working for someone. And so they've already accepted the job, and that's a good place to start because then you know that your first hook will actually hook them. Now, you might have noticed that by building the hook, you've also set the endpoint and the reward. So if, for instance, the party is working for a wizard, and he has the party going into a dungeon to retrieve some magical tome of spells for him, and then whenever you bring it back, he'll give you a certain amount of gold. So you have both the beginning, the end, and the reward all set up just in building that hook. And then uh, in between, in the middle, that's where you're going to put the meat of the adventure. All those encounters, twists and turns along the way, etc. So you're setting the beginning and end simultaneously, because you kind of have to. And then you're stuffing the middle with encounters, travel, and all that good stuff. Andrew, I know that you've got about the classic three-act structure. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because this kind of overlays on exactly what Mark is talking about. Yeah, well, you know, the three-act structure is first act, second act, and third act. In a movie or play, the first act usually takes about 25% of the story time that it would take to tell that story. The middle section takes about 50% of the time, and then the final act takes about 25% of the time. That structure has goals in building it, sort of milestones that let you know that you're finishing up these little checkboxes that kind of need to be in place for people to be drawn into the story. And in the act one, you are giving the setup. You're sort of describing what the world's like and what the character's role in that world is. And for very brand new DMs, that's probably, you, you may need to spend a little extra time on that. Once the characters are established in the world, you don't need to spend as much time going through the backstory of how these characters relate, that sort of thing. And if it's a one-shot adventure, it may be a very perfunctory type of thing. You've been hired as a mercenary and you're going to, to do this particular task or whatever. It might be beneficial as a first-time DM and first-time set of players to go ahead and make it a little what we call railroady. In other words, just 
this is what the adventure is. This is where you are. And you're sort of on the way to do this, as opposed to making it more sandboxy, where the players get a lot of options, at least for the first session. Because one of the problems for a new DM is that you'll have players that say, yeah, well, I don't want to do that. I want to open up a grocery store in town. I'm not going to go on that adventure. And you're, you kind of get stuck or they'll split the party up and they're all heading off in their different ways. And your hook didn't hook them. And so they're not moving forward on the adventure. So probably you need to have a little bit of a what we call a session zero, where you sit down with the players and outline exactly what's expected, how sort of where this adventure is going, and sort of the backdrop. And that is kind of what you're going to call the first part of the first act. And then the second half of that first act involves the hook, as Mark was saying, where you're going to try to draw them in and give them the opportunity to act. And once they've made that opportunity, you shift sort of into the middle act where they are going to change their lives. They've been working as these mercenaries, they're traveling along, and suddenly they're attacked by goblins. The stuff that they were guarding and protecting has been stolen. They're responsible. The person that they hired maybe have been kidnapped. And now they are having to make decisions on how they're going to respond to this this opportunity, this turning point in the story. And the second act involves them developing the skills and the information to resolve that conflict, whatever it is. And the whole second act kind of is that. Near the end of the second act, the characters realize that they don't have Although everything seemed to be going well, they had a misunderstanding about the way the world worked. They don't have the necessary gear or equipment to resolve the situation. They need to rethink things. They may need to approach the problem from a different angle. And then in the third act, they resolve that and end up with a sort of final conflict, a final resolution phase where they confront the big bad evil guy for your adventure and uh, resolve that. And that process repeats itself in the next adventure, which all kind of fits into a larger campaign structure. But that's the third act structure. That's the, the three act structure. It's kind of a established way of storytelling, and it works pretty well. The problem with that for PCs is that if you were writing a novel or a screenplay, you would be defining what motivated the characters. You would be defining what their interests were. You would be defining what their flaws are. But in a role-playing game, the players themselves are defining those characteristics for their character. And you don't have control over whether they decide to bite on the hook or not. They may just say, no, I want to open up a grocery store in town. And that's what, that's what going to be my adventure. I'm going to smuggle stuff to goblins. I'm not, I don't want to take this job as a mercenary. So the more you know your players, the more games or sessions you play, the DM has a better idea of what's motivating both the player and the character for choosing hooks. And so by knowing your players better and knowing the characters better, you can choose hooks that tie into the story that the players have created for their character. And that's kind of a, an important thing. I've got a few comments on that. The session zero, I think, should also be your character creation session. Usually the first session doesn't actually involve any gameplay. 
Generally, everyone gets together and they'll make their characters together, and that way everyone's familiar with everybody else's character. And you can also brief the players on all the background information that they're going to need to start the campaign. I think it's a great way to set it up so that everyone's kind of on the same page, and also you know that the PCs will take your initial hook. Second, uh, what Andrew went over with the three-act structure is a fairly complex adventure. I would recommend a new GM start out with something more like I mentioned earlier, where you go into a dungeon and retrieve a tome. You know, the party travels to the dungeon, has some combat encounters and some non-combat encounters like puzzles and traps, and at the end they get the tome and return it to the wizard for a reward. That's a very simple adventure to build and conceive of, and I would recommend a new GM start with something like that, and then try and work my way up to a more complex three-act structure like Andrew talked about. I, I would agree with that. The Agreement. My, the three-act structure is probably something that you want to do after you've kind of already gotten your feet wet with running a few encounters and a sort of loosely identified goal. You want to retrieve an object or rescue something or, yeah. But that is the basis of building an adventure is that structure. So whereas someone may want to start with these smaller encounters at the beginning to nibble off and kind of ease themselves in to the system and ease their players into the familiarity of how their characters work, the person who's DMing who wants to go through this and do their own needs to be able to think ahead at this three-part structure. The three-act structure is actually in that adventure where you go get the tome. You know, the party goes into the dungeon, things get complicated as the player's resources are depleted, they fight the big bad, get the book, and come back. It's all in there, it's just heavily condensed. The tome adventure is a complete adventure of itself, of course, you could make it part of a larger adventure, but my point is that you don't have to to make it complete. I'm a writer, or I always wanted to be a writer. So when I think about what you guys are talking about, I'm thinking about chapters. I'm thinking about prologue, campaign, you know, session zero. I'm thinking prologue, and then maybe an introduction. You know, sometimes those are two different things in a story. And then chapter one, boom, here we go. Now, in building your own adventure, it was said just a little bit ago about knowing your players and knowing the characters that they're playing. Crucial, crucial, crucial. Take notes, have that with you, because you can't help direct the story unless you understand the characters and what their motivations might mean. So with that, in regards to writing as well, and a story, if it is your adventure, you have to know your world. You have to know the story. You have to know the players. You have to know the environment. There's a lot of responsibility on the person who's running the game. And one of those, I wanted to go back and define. 
because we throw this word around and other people throw this word around, but people who are just starting in DMing and maybe don't know a lot about story structure, they may be well-versed in books, but they may not know exactly what a MacGuffin is. So I'm just going to read the Wikipedia entry because this is super important. In fiction, a MacGuffin is an object device or event that is necessary to the plot and the motivation of the characters, but insignificant, unimportant, or irrelevant in itself. The term was originated by Angus, Angus, Alfred Hitchcock, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I think if you just say the one ring, people get it. Yeah. The one ring, the Death Star plans. There are these things that are the, the kernel for the adventure. And you can have that on a chapter to chapter basis. Or in the case of the one ring, that's one that carries through the entire campaign. The Death Star plans just get you through the first Star Wars movie. And yes, boys and girls, I'm calling episode four the first Star Wars movie because it was the first damn movie. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the first Star Wars movie. You may leave disagreements or complaints in the comments. Feel free. So, we've got the fact that people need to be able to do some homework if you're going to be starting your adventure. And now, if you know that you have to have that familiarity, you need to breed some kind of familiarity between you and the players at the onset, especially if you're all new. Where do you, where do you go from there? What's, what's the next step to either creating or running your adventure? After session zero, I know the world I'm going to be playing, and I think I'm going to have people go after this tome, which means they have to go in a dungeon as the first encounter. I would argue that you don't need to know the world as well as you think you need to know the world. I would agree. You need to know the neighborhood that the characters are in and not even, you don't need to know where, if you think about your own neighborhood, you may probably know where one of the neighbors is or you know their name, but you may not know what they do for a living. You don't know what's in that shop. It's not until the characters get there that you need to sort of build that. And you can kind of build those out on the fly. If you have a few key locations kind of predefined, a generic blacksmith shop, a generic uh, pawn shop, a, a, a tavern, those generic kind of places kind of outlined in your head, you can sort of pull from those. And that's, that'll probably fill out your world, at least initially. But you can flesh that out as you go, uh, especially if you're just starting. It can be really overwhelming to try to flesh out an entire world with a pantheon and uh, political structures and who the governors are and, you know, trying to flesh all that out in such great detail as much of the published content comes in. Doing that on your own would be overwhelming and you would never really get started if that's what you were trying to do. So get your neighborhood under, get get your neighborhood under wraps, uh, understand kind of where they're going, where they met, that kind of stuff. And then you can, um, um, then <laughs> what else? No, I, I was done. I was actually passing off to you. Go ahead. My recommendation for that would be to just start in a village, call it Hilldale or something. You need to know your dungeon, which may or may not have a name, and the path there. 
you might want to have the name of the kingdom for a bit more flavor, but that's not even necessary. You don't need any political structures. You could use the provided D&D gods or the Greek gods, Norse gods, what have you. You can start with just that. The village, where you just know your neighbors and a few places there. The dungeon and the path there. You need almost nothing. Maybe on your next adventure you can start fleshing out the world a little bit more when the PCs go to a different area. But you definitely don't need to have the whole world mapped out, complete with political structures, cultures, and so on. It's really a good bit of work to put into a campaign. Now, I do it because I enjoy world building, but you never have to do anything like that if you don't want to. And definitely not in your first campaign. I uh, I feel like that I gave you all the wrong impression when I said know your world. I meant you don't want to play a D&D game and have somebody with a cyber suit. Oh, yeah. Oh, you need to oh, know your yeah, genre. For sure. <laughs> for sure. I, I, but, I you know. But, yeah. but I think that brings up an important point, though. How much detail do you need to know? And how much detail do you need to put in the descriptions for yourself in your notes? I think the key here to keep yourself sane and not overworked is that you need only what you need to run it. That sounds obvious, but you really only need to know and write down what you actually need to run the adventure. The rest can be cool, but ultimately it's fluff. You need to know and to write down only whatever you need to run your adventure, and you don't need anything more. You know, if you've got a lot of it in your head, and you only need a word to remember what's going on at that point, then you just need to write down one word. I think there's this, mis- I think there's this misconception that homemade adventures need to have the information that published adventures do and resemble them. But in reality, you need way less because so much of it is in your head. Andrew leaned forward. I'd also like to add that there are really two ways that any story can be written. One is to have sort of a character-driven story, and the other is to have a plot-driven story. And most popular stories have a blend of both, where both are being developed, the characters and the plot are being developed at the same time. Some stories may lend themselves to be a little more plot-heavy. Others may lend themselves to be more character-heavy. When the DM is constructing his storyline, he's really focusing on developing the plot. He is setting these plot points, these obstacles, these decision points in the story, and the characters are supplying the character-driven element when they play the game. So if you don't have opportunities for the characters to latch on to the character development within your adventure, then that'll get old pretty quick. Going into the dungeon, killing a bunch of goblins, next week coming into the dungeon, killing a bunch of orcs, next week coming into the dungeon, killing a bunch of trolls. And that'll just, it will, they'll, they'll just, they'll lose interest. There's not enough hook in there for their own character changing over time and growing and becoming more powerful in the world and having more interactions that if you neglect the opportunities for the characters to latch onto how their character develops, that you're going to end up with a bunch of one-shots and people are going to get bored and they're not going to want to continue to play. So both of those are important. Also, if you spend all of your time on character developing and 
you might as well just sit around and again, you might as well have the characters open up a, an inn and you can, you know, role play tea time with your characters and there's no real exciting adventure and they can just sort of develop their characters through dialogue. And that also can result in players losing interest. Why'd you have to pick on tea? I'm just asking of all the things you don't even want to bite on that. That's fine. <laughs> you can see that just the, the flat affect I'm giving Steve. Just giving me it's Jesus. Good Lord. It's just, it's like, and that's why you don't play poker with Andrew ever. Not even for fun. Cause it's not fun. <laughs> Maybe I've done that once. Maybe once. Maybe once we played cards just for shits and giggles and there were no giggles. It was, it was not, not a good time. It was neat to watch, but not a good time. It was fun for me, Steve. Oh, I'm sure it was, even though you didn't show it in your chiseled stoic face. That's fine. Now I was thinking about the, the world building thing again and about how I was saying, you know, know your world from a writing perspective. And when I said that, I really meant knowing the feel and theme of the world in your immediate surroundings, the important things to your characters that you're running through this encounter adventure campaign, which you all followed up on brilliantly. And, and that's exactly right. As a cautionary tale, I will say that I have a notebook in the other room with page after page after page of cities, towns, trading areas, geographical uh, uh, locations that have the people who are in them and what the societal structure of that area is and all of that. And I did that about years ago. <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Uh, age got in my throat. And I still haven't run anyone through a complete campaign. So start, start small is a good tip or else live with unfulfilled uh, regret. So there's a, there's a pro tip. Just run it. Just <laughs> run it. Now's the time, right? Pandemic time's the time to take people through this moldy adventure. Some of the pages are so old now that the pencil is faded, and I really need to look at it under the right light to see the names. I mean, <sighs> you've had years to memorize it. You've got it in your head, right? You're right, I do. It doesn't matter if I've got the maps or not. Yeah, you've I've got, got it. it in my Just head. run it. It's true. It's true. You don't need <sighs> the right lighting. I don't. You need I don't. the right drive. I do. And the drive is me telling you to do it. Okay. Okay, driver. <laughs> All right. I will say something that would help if you're doing your own encounter or adventure is coming up with at least a neat name for something, a character that people have to interact with that they can remember that has an important part in their adventure to begin with to act as kind of this go-between avatar that, you know, feeds them information that maybe you don't want to tell them outright as a dungeon master. And you might want to think about, just from a writing perspective, the first character that I had that I wanted people to meet in my adventure that I wanted to do 
His name was Owen Prather. And that is a guy's name that I worked with ages ago when I did Department of Highways work during the summers when I first went to college. And this guy, everybody called him Gomer. And he had been in Vietnam, and they sent him behind enemy lines for weeks at a time. And he came back, and he was different. Before he left, he had a bachelor's in anthropology. But he's my size. He's like six foot four. And they sent him out to assassinate people and left him. And he had to fight his way back. And when he came back, he was different. And so he worked Department of Highways for decades. Where's this guy from? I think I might actually be familiar with him. Well, he, he is from central West Virginia in a small uh, coal camp area. And to be honest, I don't even know if Gomer is still alive because that's what they called him when he came back. They called him Gomer. Gomer Pyle. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I do know this guy. Okay. All right. Gomer was the sweetest man that I have ever known who could probably kill me before I could blink. And when I found out his real name was Owen Prather, I decided right then and there I was going to use his name for something because that name was too awesome to just let die behind the nickname Gomer. So try and find an interesting name for a character to put in your campaign. They're all around us. Do you guys have any memorable? Oh, go ahead, Mark. GMing is an art form. And I think that any place that someone would derive inspiration for any other form of art, that's inspiration for campaigns, adventures, encounters, NPCs, and so on. Any dreams, novels, natural features, whatever inspires you, you can use that in your GMing. I think that that's the drive for the creation of a lot of art. It's the joy of taking inspirations, things private to you, and turning them into something other people can appreciate. And to me, that's one of the big appeals of GMing. It's art. I'm writing notes because I had an idea based on what we had talked about before about taking an episode, two, three, whatever, and building our own adventure. I have an idea for that that we're going to come back to because of what you just said, Mark. Well, I'm glad it mattered. It did. It really did. So we decide what we're going to do. To start off, we're going to do an encounter. Just recapping here. We split that encounter up into segments. We have a MacGuffin because it's easy and it's accessible. We have a tome that the people need to get. All right, they've got to go into a dungeon, get it from this guy, come back, done. That, that's a simple encounter to run somebody through. We're talking about being familiar with at least the surroundings to the fact that you know where they start, where they're going to be passing through, and where the ultimate destination is, and who the ultimate, you know, the antagonist or the ultimate obstacle is there at the end of this encounter. So I know that Andrew's got something here about plots and multiple plots. And what is this? You, you have written down here Booker's Seven Basic Plots. What's that? These are literary plot devices. Booker, and I'm not even sure of Booker's first name, but Booker came up with these 
what he calls the seven basic plots. And uh, I think he argues that these that every story can fit one of these seven plot structures. One of these is, and many of these fit what you would do in a role-playing game very well. Probably the one that doesn't work so well would be a comedy plot. Uh, but you could probably, a creative writer could probably fit in. And I know that I've been in a comedy kind of dungeon. So the, uh, in fact, I think there was a, can't remember the name of it. I think it was a Greyhawk uh, adventure where it was a sort of a comedy dungeon had bunnies and things like that. And, uh, anyhow, oh, the, I like it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was fun. But these seven basic, these seven basic plots are one overcoming the monster. You've got a individual that is, you know, Voldemort wanting to destroy the world. And the plot is to defeat the bad guy. And he's just bad for bad sake kind of thing. You've got this rags to riches kind of plot, and it doesn't have to be financial riches. It may be a newfound power, newfound ability, and how that transforms someone. And it may be that that transforms the PCs. It may be that someone they know has been transformed and changed, not for the better necessarily, and how that impacts the actions of the PCs. The movie Lady Hawk. The quest, which we talked about, is which includes seeking and finding some kind of MacGuffin. The voyage and return, which is simply that you are asked to go someplace or you have, you're compelled to go somewhere, maybe for work or to retrieve an item. And it's not the item that's important, but the journey and the adventures that you have along the way and on the return. The tragedy plot. And this is the price of a fatal flaw meaning that you are pretty much a good person, but you have a, a particular flaw that is going to be your downfall. I think of Seven with Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. And the, the I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, but the, the main character had a fatal flaw, which came back and resulted in some tragedy for him. And then Rebirth which is just someone's growth, where they are finding a personal insight or improving upon themselves through challenges. And these are sort of the, the basic seven plots that you can sort of build any adventure on. I don't think they're necessarily important for a beginning adventure. We can just stick with a simple MacGuffin kind of type of thing. And it might just be exploration, kind of the quest. We're going to look and find and explore this new, something strange been happening. We're going to investigate this area kind of thing. There is a, another structure that is pretty popular in the role-playing arena, and that is called the five-room dungeon. You can Google that. It's a, a pretty common device to create a five-room dungeon. It usually has some kind of guardian at the front. I forget the the basic content. I'll, I'll dig that up here in a second. Mark, did you have anything to add? No, you were going through those plots, and that's excellent advice. <laughs> um, another thing you can do if you're lacking in inspiration, which we all are sometimes, is that you can do a Google search for something like D&D plot hooks. And there's tons of good ideas out there. You might not use those plot hooks wholesale, but you'll probably be inspired to do something similar or put your own spin on it. Something that works for you and your campaign. 
but some of them are pretty good and you might just want to use them wholesale. That's fine too. But the seven basic plots are great. You can use those to help you build adventures or even better, campaigns. Because campaigns and adventures are pretty because campaigns and adventures are pretty similar in how you build them. You know, they're both very plot centric. Yeah, so I I did locate that information on the five room dungeon and it doesn't have to be a dungeon. It, it's essentially these five scenes that the characters progress through. And in the first scene, the characters are exposed to the entrance or the opening and a guardian of the information. And so they've got some kind of barrier to actually reaching. Uh, it's, it's their initial barrier, and they will uncover additional information about the story from this adventure. So it's going to be an information they'll, they'll have. And once they've overcome this obstacle, they move on to the next one, which is a puzzle or role-playing challenge. And, and they don't have to be necessarily in this order. Room three is some kind of trick or setback. And it's interesting to note that these five rooms roughly follow that three-act structure. And room four is the climax or the big battle or conflict with the, with the big bad evil guy, as we say. And then room five is the discovery of the reward, the revelation of what was going on behind the scenes, or some kind of plot twist that may connect to a future adventure. And that five-room five dungeon, and it roughly follows that, the three-act play as far as, that, as, as those elements are broken down. As you were talking about the plots, it made me think about all of the anime that I've watched over the past of years and that uh sorry it's just every time i have to speak a number like that it just something gets in my throat <laughs> yeah, sorry about that a lot of the anime is full of those seven plot devices and when you were talking about the the fatal flaw I was thinking about in Inuyasha, there is a character called Maroku, who is a lecherous monk, and he has a curse in his hand called the Wind Tunnel. And it's essentially a gate to an intradimensional space, almost like a bag of holding with an appetite. And so his goal, because he was, this was passed on to him from his father, because his father had been cursed by the big bad of the adventure. So his whole goal is to kill the big bad before the wind tunnel consumes him. And, you know, it would just be icing on the cake if he could kill the big bad using it. And so those motivations and those storylines exist all over the place. And there's the theory, of course, that there are no new storylines. That as an organism, humanity has exhausted all potential storylines. And when we find something that breaks a little bit, breaks a little bit from that mold in some way, then we find it novel and we just kind of horn in on it. So when you're starting, go ahead. I think the fallacy with that is that the plot is not the story. That the fact that you are pursuing the MacGuffin is part of the, it's a part of the story. 
And those seven elements reoccur, but what really differentiates a story are the motivations of the characters. It's the char- it's why they are pursuing the MacGuffin. It is why does the big bad evil guy want to do this? It's that it's that underlying meaning that the characters that you play, and that's why when you what's really interesting when you do become a DM, if you get the privilege to DM for multiple groups, the story is different, even though the plot is the same. If you run the same adventure for multiple groups, it's got the same plot, but the meaning that the players take away from it and the meaning that they add to it differs greatly. And so you'll never play the same exact adventure the same. You're setting up the plot framework, but the story itself is developed out of the players and their choices and the way they assign meaning to particular objects and goals and how they balance those meanings against other goals. And it's, it's really fascinating how that, that, that develops. That might be the thing that I like most about GMing. Like I said, you make the basic outline, but it's the players who fill in the details and make it come alive. It's collaborative storytelling. I would recommend that a new DM document their story as they go, especially if the story starts becoming somewhat impromptu, because that's an opportunity to use that storyline again with a different group of players. You Once you've created the content, I mean, you could really run the Lost Man's of Fandelver a dozen, 20 times. And I think that uh, Tracy, who's been on previous podcasts, mentioned that she runs that and it's different every time. And you become really familiar with that particular story and who the characters are and what their, the NPCs, the, the non-player characters, who they are and what their motivations are for your world. And the next time you run it, you're, you've, you've improved your skill set because it's something you're, you're not having to learn new content. It's just the, your, your delivery improves. And the players that are playing that game are going to have a different experience. Uh, so I would definitely recommend that you polish up your DMing skills on the same adventure and then run that same adventure again and then run that same adventure again for different groups. And you'll, you'll quickly learn some good skills and polish. I am way too experimental for that, but uh, it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I always try something new. Yeah. Well, you know, what I was getting at with the whole story about uh, Moroku and the big baddie Naraku is that there really aren't a lot of new stories, you know, I, I, and, and I guess you can scale it back based on what you're saying, Andrew, and is there just aren't that many new plots. But the story, if you're defining it as the experience and the living legacy of the characters in the world that they are in, changes, then that is what adds spice and difference to stories that allow us to listen or enjoy or watch or play through the same plots, but in a different situation or a situation that's our own. And the thing that I've had such a hard time getting used to as a writer is knowing that it's okay to steal because you're not really stealing. We have this human experience that everybody's built on since the first humans were sitting around a fire and somebody tried to describe the fact that they had burnt their hand on a stick. 
there there's story building that goes on and it's we all have this kind of hereditary story that we carry with us in our cultures and our countries and you know in the human condition so taking these elements from other stories and adapting them to your own is fine and you know what you may think that as you're building this encounter the adventure of the campaign you may think that people are going to be like, oh, that's just like what happened in Harry Potter. Well, it might be plot wise, but it's the wrapper that you put it in and the people that are in it that give it life and make it different. Not unlike the five room dungeon. When you mentioned that, Andrew, I was thinking about the original Elder Scrolls game, Arena. Because Arena had these very simple little dungeons, and they all kind of followed that kind of model in my head, where you had the entrance, and you had a little path to go to, and you came across an impediment, and then you had a, a little big bad there, and then, you know, some kind of reward at the end, and an exit. And I played that over and over and over. And if I look at Morrowind, Oblivion, Skyrim, well, those dungeons are kind of created the same way, but their wrapper is a little bit different and it allows you to play through them and feel like you're doing something new and exciting. Pleasurism is a modern invention. It used to be called homage. That is true. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. There's a reason that's a phrase, because if you are Imitating something and putting your own spin on it, it's a mark of respect to that other thing. Unless, of course, what you did is just so much better than what you stole from that it just makes it look like crap. Uh, and that's a whole other thing. You know, you're looking at works like the Aeneid, which is, you know, clearly based on Homer's stories. And I don't think anyone is going to call Virgil a plagiarist, at least not in a negative way. It's homage, you know. He used a similar style and themes. He made something like it, just put his own touch to it, and made it his own. I actually have an old copy from the 1800s of the Aeneid downstairs that's really neat. I'll have to show that to you. That's awesome. That's like one of my favorite books. Is it really? Yeah. Alrighty then. Then I, I will definitely, if I can find it. It's not a coincidence I majored in Latin but if I can find it, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. You can have it. Uh, it. It does. The binding is a little rough, but it's a, it's a very neat copy. Now, speaking of old, dead Mediterranean people, Andrew. <laughs> now, that didn't sound right at all. You're not an old, dead Mediterranean person. I was thinking about people building on the works of others. And that made me think about the whole stoicism thing. And how, you know, in all kinds of things, people have built upon the teachings and the writings and the stories of others. And, you know, I didn't know if you had some interesting little tidbit about who the Stoics might have stolen from. Well, the Roman Stoics definitely stole from the Greek ones. <laughs> Romans stole everything. That's what you call being Roman. That's a... Uh... That's, that's true. That's actually why they didn't understand Christians. What Romans would usually do is kind of just add 
conquer conquered people's gods to their pantheon and said, hey, look, you're Roman. And then the Christians were like, no, we've got this one guy. And the Romans said, all right, cool, he can be part of our pantheon. They're like, no, only this guy. And the Romans were like, maybe we should get rid of these guys. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I laughed. That, that was... Canceled on our seventh episode. <laughs> Just feeding that satanic panic thing. Just as a side note, I was thinking the other night watching Stranger Things again because our youngest decided she's finally ready to watch it. And I'm watching it and I'm going, honey. How old is she? This is, huh? How old is she? She's, she's 12. She's 12, okay. but she doesn't like to be scared. Well, that she shouldn't watch that. Right. But she decided she wanted to, and she's done a really good job and she enjoys it, but we watched it with her. Hmm. And I told her, I said, everything that happens in this is my childhood. So pay close attention. And she's like, everything? I was like, everything. The monsters, everything. That's my childhood. Just believe that. Well, I was thinking about the satanic panic and Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. And I remember an aunt that I, that I have, who is a dear, wonderful, sweet Episcopalian lady. She was mortified because she came in one day and I had double trouble. I had MTV on and I had a D and D book. And so for shame, you know, I was, oh my God, I was, you know, I was lewd and evil. If she'd looked under the rug, she would have found your pentagram. I didn't have it under the rug. I use salt and I vacuum it up afterwards. So. Wise. Yeah. Yeah. Pro tip. Pro tip. So. <laughs> the, but the, the whole thing about the satanic panic, these people had absolutely no idea what Dungeons and Dragons was really like. Because we were in there fighting evil. We were in there being the good guys, killing the monsters, taking things back to their rightful owners, all of these just things. They had no idea. A bunch of morons. Sorry, just, there's my side rant. <sighs> go back to the paper. Now, I did have one note here where on both of your notes, I've got written interpersonal. Because both of you had something in your notes that had to do with the players themselves, had to do with maybe flaws in the characters that they play, maybe traits of the characters that they play. And I was thinking that if you're DMing for the first time, even if you know the group, that you really have to be prepared for frustration and disappointment at some point whether in yourself or whether with the people you're trying to herd and get to do what you want. So I wonder if there are just expectations, almost like a mantra, that people who are doing this for the first time need to consider and need to think about, need to hear from experienced GMs about what it's like, what they can expect, and how they can deal with it. Thoughts? So, you'll have your adventure. 
and it will seem perfect. You'll expect the party to progress in a certain way, and the PCs are going to surprise you. Once I had a locked door in my dungeon, beyond which was the big bad. And since it was a natural cave, I said that the floor was made of dirt and rock, and the druid, unbeknownst to me, had a spell that apparently just digs through dirt and stone and dug into the room holding my big bad way too early. And things like that aren't even rare. The PCs are going to get you every time. So you kind of have to be prepared for surprises, which sounds like an oxymoron. Sounds impossible. But that's where thinking on your feet and experience comes in. No adventure is ever going to go quite the way you write it down. Yeah. No, uh, no adventure survives contact with the players. <laughs> yeah. Period. For anyone. For anyone. And I think it's important to remember that the DM controls space and time, and the players don't know that. So that if it's the first or second room, and the players appear to be bypassing the map that you've created, well, when they get on the other side, as the DM, I just move the room that they were, I was expecting them to get into, to where the big baddie was, and I move the big baddie somewhere else. I just changed the layout on the fly of what I was doing so that the sequence follows more of a reasonable progression and doesn't prematurely end the adventures with either the PC's death or the, they bypassed a lot of the content that they needed for full understanding. You don't necessarily need to do that all the time. Sometimes it may be interesting to have the PCs go blindly into a room where the big baddie is that they're not prepared for. But remember that the DM controls space and time and that you can move things around in your story and you can take stuff that would have been bypassed and move that content right in front of them and provide it. And it doesn't even need to be provided in the same format. It might be that you had a puzzle and it was all built out into this room and you need to move it in front of them and then you need to change the way the puzzle presents itself because of the, the context. And that's fine to do as well. In that scenario I gave with the druid digging into my big bad room, you can, like Andrew said, move a different room, a different encounter into that room where the big bad was. But alternatively, what you can do rather than moving your rooms around is to just change that room and then you'll add the original room back in. So uh, in my example, you can have Say the big bad cast a spell that deals some damage to the PCs. He says some threatening words and disappears. Then you just take your original room with the big bad in it and add it to the end of the dungeon. So that way you don't have to replace the room you moved into the big bad room if you're attached to your dungeon map in any way. There's all kinds of strategies that you can use for this, but the important thing is that you've got to be flexible with your designs so that things play out like you need them to. It can feel like you're cheating the PCs out of a victory when you do this, or that you're punishing them for being clever and surprising you, but really what's going on is that the players would also prefer to encounter the dungeon in a satisfying and reasonable manner and get the plot points that keep everything moving forward 
in reality, what you're doing is making the game better for everybody, even if it kind of feels like you're cheating your players. I was thinking as kind of a, a, a wrap-up, I have a comment about what we're talking about as far as the GM having control of time and space, the GM being able to move things and provide a different solution that the characters may have solved without knowing that they were getting the right answer to the problem. And that is, there is a joy of feeling that the adventure that you are playing is not written, that your choices matter, and that the experience that you're having has merit, and it is not on rails. And it is important to know, to get into your brain as a game master, that that ultimate power relies in you because you are the master of that game. You are in control of that world. You are in control, ultimately, of whether the characters progress via X, Y, or Z. And so, knowing that, even as a beginning GM, that you have a lot of responsibility and you have to keep on top of things and et cetera, blah, et cetera, blah, you can still do anything you want <laughs> pretty much with the story. And people nine times out of 10 won't have any clue that it wasn't supposed to go that way. As long as you give a nice poker face like Andrew has, rather than looking like me if something goes wrong and I look like someone who's just been shot. So if you can keep it under control, then they're none the wiser. Because I know Andrew does it. Damn him. You don't even have to. They aren't looking at your face to see if you messed up. If you've got a pause for some reason, your players are going to start talking amongst themselves or messing with the dice or whatever it is. They're not checking to see if you messed up. You don't have to be a stoic poker face. I'm not, and I get away with it all the time. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that the it's a different way of approaching the adventure. I think that it's easy for a new DM to get locked into the map that they've created or the and that becomes a static thing instead of thinking of it as nodes sort of the, these I've got scene one scene one's going to pre be pre uh, presented first scene two is going to be presented next scene three is going to be presented next scene four is going to be presented next and you know sometimes the order is not important but if it is important then it doesn't matter whether the characters go down the hallway and turn left or whether the characters go down and turn right, if I need scene two to be next, that's what they're going to see. And so it doesn't matter where they go in the world. And that's one of the flexibilities of not having to have the world memorized because I can say, well, they, they walk down this little side street in this major city, they come up on this pawn shop, they go inside, and then I reveal scene two, which was what I was going to reveal if they had gone down to the docks and talked to some of the dock workers, well, I might swap out some of the PCs, some of the NPCs, but 
scene two is still going to be displayed because that's what was necessary for the story to progress. In their mind, it's very sandboxed. They could have chosen anything. They could have gone anywhere. And it just so happened that they talked to the right PCs at the right time, the NPCs at the right time. Whereas if I'm locked into the map and I'm like, well, you go down to the docks and nobody's there and they don't know anything. What else do you want to do? Well, let's go over to the tavern. Okay, well, you go over to the tavern. Nobody knows anything. What are you going to do? And they could do 20 different sites that way. That's not fulfilling to the players where I can just move that NPC and I might have them let them go to the docks and recover nothing. And then they go to the tavern and it's clear they're not going down to the pawn shop where I need them to go. So I just move that content to the tavern and say, okay, when you get to the tavern, you see you know, two of the people that you were looking for and, they're, and, and then, the, the, then, then it's on. And then, but that would have happened at any of the locations they would have gone to to begin with. So don't get tied into your plans. Be thinking more of an outline, much like you would do a speech where you could have a speech written. You know, you lose your card and you can't really go anywhere. But if you've got a, uh, or you end up with an audience that's different. However, if you plan in a more general way where you've got kind of bullet points that you need to cover, you can sort of slide those bullet points in and out of the presentation. And that's essentially what you're doing when you're running the game is that you've got certain bullet points that need to be covered and somewhere along the line that you just present those bullet points or those situations to the characters. And the nice thing about that is that it actually makes your planning easier. You just have certain things that need to happen. You write those down to the extent that you need them. You have the stat blocks, and that is legitimately all you need. I think a lot of people, they think that planning an adventure is more difficult than it is. I mean, you get better at it with experience, but the planning, you can do that with very little. Like Andrew said, you just need the bullet points for what's going to happen, stat blocks, and that's it. I don't want people to get intimidated by GMing. The parts that people think are going to be difficult aren't really the most difficult parts. You don't have to have the whole world build out cultures and all this that people think that you have to have. The harder part is really educating a game on the fly, and that just comes with experience. So, you know, don't get intimidated by GMing. The hard parts aren't really what you think they are, and you can definitely do it. I wanted to say that for people who are looking to play for the first time, people who are new, that I I have an application I don't know if either of you have ever used. It's uh, an iOS application called Fight Club. Does that ring a bell with you guys? Yep. And it's companion application. Uh, is it, they've got a companion application for Dungeon Masters. Yes. Yes, they do. And I love Fight Club. Uh, I've got it on my phone. And when we play 5th edition is this only for iOS, or can you do it on PC or Android? No, I think it comes for uh, for Android OS as well. Yeah, and I it, it's easy to convert a lot of the digital resources over to it. I I do it for impromptu games if I'm traveling and I've got uh, we went to the beach and had some kids that wanted to play, and I happen to have uh, the the all all I need to do to run the the game right from my phone and. Just have them download the app. They sync up. You get to do your roles and things right off the app. And uh, it's 
It's a great resource. I'm doing a quick look to see if there is an Android version. Oh, yeah. It looks like they've got it on, yeah, the Google Play Store. That's right. So that is a really nice application to have. You can keep a character with you. It's in your pocket. It automates some of the rolling and things like that for you. And so if you have a connected bunch of friends, it's really a great way to keep track of everything. Now, of course, it's a little bit different now that we are in pandemic time. So you might be able to use something like Fight Club if you were playing through, say, Discord. But if you're using something like Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds, that's kind of heavy to get into right away, though. Yeah, it is. There's a learning curve. Yeah, if I was starting out and I have to play remote with my friends, pen and paper and maybe a whiteboard behind me if I'm the GM, <laughs> and, you know, maybe maybe Fight Club is a supplement, I think that may, may actually work fairly well. There are a few also, there are, there are a few D&D bots for, discard, uh, for Discord, which will roll the die, uh, do checks, have, I think, the SRD rules available where you can do searches. I use one on my Discord channel. I don't use it, but I have it installed on my Discord channel. Uh, A-V-R-A-E, Evrai, I think is the name of the, the bot. And it does uh, roles and things right there in the Discord channel. So anybody can type in slash roll and it'll roll the die for them. And I mean, that might be all that you need if you're doing a less tactical game with Theater of the Mind. Sure. Which, for anyone who doesn't know, that's just playing without a grid. No pieces, no grid. All in your brain. Get your spatial reasoning on. Old school. Old school. That's right. From way back about <clears throat> years ago, <laughs> when uh, everything used to... It's just terrible. It's terrible. I can't stop that. So, at the end, do you guys have anything you'd like to add before we adjourn? Uh, I mean, no adventure survives encountering the PCs. <laughs> Hammer that home. And we'll, we'll have to end up putting links to some of the things that we talked about in our notes so that people have access to those. Yeah, and I'm sure that we'll talk more about that whenever we do online resources and online GMing and stuff like that. Thanks for joining us on Game Mastery. You can always check us out on anchor.fm slash game dash mastery. Or follow us on Twitter at mastery underscore game, Instagram at Game Mastery Podcast, or Facebook and YouTube at Game Mastery. If you'd like to ask us a question or get some follow-up information, maybe submit a topic for the show, please email us at rpg.gamemastery at gmail.com. And we'll be back next week for more information to make your games better and to make you a better Game Master.